Welcome to Pioneers of Peer. I am John Kelly, your host and peer program lead at the U.S. Green Building Council. Through this podcast series, we will explore stories and hear from industry leaders to learn about what it means to create sustainable electricity delivery systems. Today on Pioneers of Peer, we have Paul O'Neill, former CEO of Alcoa and past Secretary of Treasury. Mr. O'Neill also served as an advisor to Peer during the development phase. Let's get started. You were a good friend of Bob Galvin, the former CEO of Motorola and founder of Peer. What brought you two together? Uh, yeah, when you say Bob Galvin, it brings back fond memories. So in the early 80s, there were a number of people in the U.S. who were very interested in equality and the prospective value of operating a company from a values base and uh, trying to move toward ever better level of performance. And Bob Galvin was one of those people at Motorola. Don Peterson at Ford was another. Uh, David Carnes at Xerox was another. And there were others, and including myself, who talked to each other across industries and swapped ideas about how we could move forward and uh, visited each other's facilities and the like. And so that's how I got to know Bob, he was one of a cadre of people who believed that the United States needed to pull itself up and operate at a much higher level than what had traditionally been the case. Not to say that we in the United States were bad, but there were examples in in Germany, individual companies in Germany, and a, a broad swath of companies in Japan that were demonstrating a differential level of performance. And we were being urged on by Dr. Deming and uh, Joe Giron, who was a statistician, also interested in the quality movement. And so there was an intellectual ferment, if I might say it that way, that suggested leadership could produce differentially better results with quality ideas. And uh, so that's how I get to know Bob. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now and what the electricity sector could learn from these efforts? Uh, Well, I'm working on still working on too many things, but um, I guess I would say a a majority of my time is spent working in a variety of ways on the issues of health and medical care in the United States. And uh, to dimension that for you, I believe that if we could cause ourselves in the United States in the health medical care sector to perform at levels that have been demonstrated possible in a few places, that we could vastly improve outcomes from health medical care interventions, and we could save a trillion dollars a year in the bargain. And so when I look at the landscape It is an enormous potential value to the society in the United States if we could operate at what I call the theoretical limit, which means we are on the edge of perfect every day in everything we do. So, Paul, you you coached us during the development of FEAR to find a way to help projects identify, quantify, and pursue the theoretical or upper limit of performance. Can you explain the process and why it's so important? 
Sure. So this goes back a little bit, and if your listeners are students of industrial history, they they will remember, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, people started talking about the concept of benchmarking. And the concept of benchmarking, let's say if you were an industrial firm, was to look at other firms doing the same kind of business, the same kind of processes, and look to see who was better and to use that benchmarking information to prod yourself on to perform at a higher level. And it's not that it was a bad idea, but I believe, and there are others who also believe, as I do, that in a way benchmarking is an inadequate idea because one of the values of looking outside your own operations and activities is to be able to see yourself in a context. And so I believe a far better context is to establish uh, what I call the theoretical limit. And in shorthand, the theoretical limit means, you know, if the forces of nature or if God doesn't keep you from doing it, you can do it. So let me go back to my health medical care experience. Every year in the United States, we have something on the order of 2 million cases a year where an American citizen goes into a healthcare facility and gets an infection they didn't bring with them and for sure they don't want or need. And so if you apply the theoretical limit to that, the answer is no one should ever get a hospital-acquired infection. In fact, there is an experience based in a few places in the country where it's been demonstrated with the right attention to detail and the right adherence to uh, practices that we know eliminate bacteria in the hospital environment. You can actually produce a hospital environment where people never get an infection in that particular environment. And so I'll give you a specific example. When I started working on this, I was working with a specific hospital, and their so-called central line associated bloodstream infections, which is a class of a hospital-acquired infection, was less than 2%. So less than 2% of the patients who went through their intensive care units in a year got an infection, and they were really quite self-satisfied because when they looked at the benchmark data from the Center for Communicable Diseases, they found that they were better, that is to say lower, than the national average. And so they believed incorrectly that they were good enough and that they couldn't afford to spend enough money to get to zero. And so they were satisfied that they were better than the benchmark national average. So we worked with them, and in a period of about nine months, they set about systematically understanding in detail everything they did every day, and they put in place a process and procedures that were largely devised by the people who did the work. And in the following year, they had zero hospital-acquired infections. So to put that in context, I'll tell you some numbers. In the base measurement period, they had 1,784 patients. They had 39 infections, and 19 people died. 
in the in the post phase after they've devised solutions to these problems that produce bacteria, they had over 1,800 patients. They had one infection, and no one died, which demonstrates, I think, the possibility that exists in virtually everything that we do, not just in health and medical care, if you think about it correctly. So if you use the theoretical limit as a concept, say, in the electricity distribution context, the answer to the question is, how often uh, should we have outages? The answer is never. And it's amazing, Paul, that in applying this uh, upper limit, theoretical limit of performance in the electricity sector, we have now seen municipal utilities who have got to close to near zero in terms of outages, and they're still working to get to that zero. So we are seeing the application of that theoretical limit is showing us that it is possible, and their operating costs are lower than the average utility. So we're seeing the costs can go down and performance can go up. And so based on your advice, we included a, in PEER a credit for determining the, the theoretical limit or upper limit of performance and quantifying the waste in dollars from current performance to the upper limit. We call this the performance gap. Why is putting a number on gap important? Well, I, I, it, it helps people to understand the value potential of working toward the theoretical limit and it creates a sense of accomplishment for the people who are doing the work. It's not, you know, just for the thrill of doing the work, but it produces consequential change in performance level, both for the satisfaction of customers across all kinds of industries. And, and often, in the, for example, in the health medical care environment, it produces, you know, morally and ethically fabulous consequences that are, I would say, while the dollar's important, uh, I would say it's more important to save lives. And there's a corollary in the electricity sector. As you know, Paul, I think the average now is over 100 deaths for non-electricity workers contacting overhead power lines. And that doesn't count all the injuries. And so we have trouble in this industry putting a, uh, a value on safety. Uh, we also have issues with arc flash where workers who are working on substations or electrical equipment can be contacted by a huge uh, explosion. It's, it's part of an arc flash that happens when you're switching high voltage gear. So we clearly have that uh, non-monetary safety issue within the electricity sector. So John, as you know, I believe the place to start with ideas of a theoretical limit and uh, gap closure is indeed with regard to workplace safety. And when I was at Alcoa on the day I arrived there, I proclaimed that we were going to learn how to become an injury-free workplace. And we weren't in a bad place when we started, but we improved, that is to say, we reduced our injured worker rate to practically zero over the 13 years I was there. And and one of the things that I must say I'm proud of, you know, I, I don't like saying proud of much, but that I'm proud of is I've been out of Alcoa 15 years, and they continue to be the safe one of the safest workplaces in the world. And it's because the people 
own the idea of an injury-free workplace. It didn't die when I left. This is a good point. You and Bob shared a unique ability to transform the people you led to help them dramatically improve their ability to produce better outcomes for themselves and the company. How can leaders in the electricity sector build a new culture of performance that, that you're describing here, Paul? I think, John, it, it, it begins with leadership establishing a value base that's not just words on the wall or something in the annual report, but it's the basis for everyday action in an enterprise so that uh, people know that in their workplace they can count on uh, value-based decisions, beginning with uh, valuing them as human beings. You know, over, over time, it causes a workplace environment where the cynicism recedes, you know, and, and people get, begin to believe we truly can live with our values and we do not sacrifice them for anything. There's no amount of money that would cause us to bend our value calculus. And it's such a powerful tool because I, I believe human beings as a generalization have what I call discretionary energy to bring to what they do. And in a truly great organization, all of the human energy is flowing the same direction toward aspirational goals, like people who work here never get hurt at work, or we never have outages, or or any of the other th negatives that are typically associated with an industry or an activity. And it builds a force that is just awesome to be part of. You coached us to focus on performance outcomes that matter. And I think what you just described, Paul, was why that's so important. And I think the whole idea of the human, the workers themselves and, and what's important to them, like their safety, by having that zero incidence approach, uh, I can see now, Paul, how that changes the organization to get at that, that energy, uh, the discretionary energy that you described. And an important thing I found, John, is if a leadership focuses on uh, helping the organization to do everything ever better every day with a system of continuous learning and continuous improvement, it drives out what I think is an ill-advised uh, leadership framework, which is focusing on financial results. Because in my experience, if an organization is truly great and getting better every day and redefining excellent for the whole world and the whole industry every day, the financial results take care of themselves. So when I was at Alcoa, I never set any financial goals or targets or expectations. I figured they would take care of themselves. And so in the 13 years I was there, the market value of the company went from $4 billion to $36 billion. And I, I never said we need to make more money to anybody. I said we need to use our human energy in a way that's highly productive and getting better every day. And as I expected, it produced fabulous financial results. And, and we're seeing the same thing on the electricity sector, that focus on 
as David Wade described from Chattanooga, his team now, his entire staff at Chattanooga, it feels proud of what they've accomplished, just as they do at Naperville. Munis, both municipal utilities that have achieved outstanding performance, lowered costs, and uh, become much safer in terms of uh, the example of Naperville, Paul. They're completely underground right now with their distribution system, at least about 95% of it. So they've they've almost eliminated the potential for workers and the public to interact uh, with the electricity system in a way that someone would get hurt. You really see that all the people working there are much more energized. Finally, in, in your experience, what is the most important area of focus for an executive in the utility sector today? As I said, I you know, I think life begins and ends on the issue of um, what I call a precondition. So, you know, I, I think the most, most important goals should never be priorities. They should be preconditions. And so I believe a precondition for every organization, no matter what you do, should be an injury-free workplace. Because one of the things I've found in my career is when people talk about we have these priorities, they they often don't look at it from the point of view of the people in the organization. And if the priorities are not sweeping and all-encompassing, the people who are down in the organization look at the things that are named priorities, and if they don't find themselves, they say, I'm not important. That's a terrible thing. Everyone in the organization needs to know that they are on the priority agenda because the priorities are aspirational goals that necessarily encompass the entire organization. They're not marketing is more important or sales is more important or or construction is more important. They're something I, I believe when I was at Alcoa I, and I often said to people, if you're here, you're important because if you weren't here, we wouldn't be able to fulfill our function. And so if you're here and you're not important, we've made a mistake. And people responded to the idea that no matter what they did in the organization, they had an importance to the fulfillment of the mission and there weren't people who were more important than others. You know, so I've worked hard when I was at Alcoa to diminish the idea of hierarchy because, again, another thing I found in my career is that in a great organization, every person is part of the constant quest for doing things better, no matter what level of organization a person may be in. So let me use my health and medical care example again. The people who clean the rooms in hospitals are as important as the brain surgeon because if they don't do a good job of what they do, the brain surgeon's brilliant work could be undone by an infection that kills a patient. So are the, are the people who clean the rooms important? You bet. And it's true in every kind of an organization no matter what your pay level or your title, you're there and you need to be considered important and you need to understand your importance and act on the idea of perfect performance every day. Thank you, Paul. You know, when I think about PEER, which is a design and rating system that 
actually sets preconditions for 60 areas of performance within an electricity system. I had not thought about it that way, but I think that's a powerful, a powerful way to think about developing within your organization those set of preconditions that don't necessarily have a priority to them. They, they all need to be met. John, it's like breathing every day. You don't put a priority on today, I'm not going to breathe. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much, Paul. I, I know you have a lot going on, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today about peer and about performance excellence. So, John, thanks for having me. Good luck in all you're doing. 